joined here today by Greg Savage, one of the most recognised recruitment gurus, shall we say, uh, across uh, Australia, but certainly across New Zealand and now uh, globally. He has had some amazing experience scaling companies from startup to listing to other endeavors around scaling companies globally, selling. He consults uh, or advises on a number of boards. Uh, He's an investor in a number of recruitment companies also. And he is also an avid speaker at RCSA, the Recruitment Industry Association here in Australia and New Zealand. Um, So he's got a wonderful perspective. He's got some great takeaways, whether you're an individual recruiter a recruitment leader, a business owner. So there's some great insights via his 40 years of experience. So I really hope that you enjoy that and uh, there's some great takeaways uh, within that. Well, look, Greg, uh, thanks for joining us here today. Uh, Obviously, uh, I've known an awful lot of your background. You were on our board for some time and and gave us some great tips and tricks. Um, But maybe for those that aren't as familiar with your backstory, Give us the uh, the three-minute summary of your recruitment CV for those that perhaps aren't as familiar as I am. Yeah, thanks, Sean. It's uh, extremely nice to be on your podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Three minutes to summarize 40 years. Easy, <laughs> easy. Started in, uh, in January 1980, which might switch a lot of people off immediately, but worked in executive search in Australia for a few years, went to London, worked for Accountancy Personnel, which is the company that became Hayes. This was all pre-the-internet, so it was all old-school recruiting in its real sense. Came back to Australia with the same company, um, and when Hayes bought that company, myself and two other guys, uh, I'd had about six or seven years' experience, about 27, we jumped off and started our own business, which was called Recruitment Solutions. Uh, it was a long journey, um, but it was, it was a lot of fun and a lot of success, and we grew that business from a few, handful of us in a room to 250 staff across Australia and New Zealand and a listing on the Australian Stock Exchange in 1998, which was um, only the third recruitment company ever to list after Skilled and Morgan and Banks, for those of you with long memories. So that was a lot of fun, a lot of success, and I was only about 40. Uh, I stayed on the board for a couple of years after the listing. Very different, and another day we can talk about that, running a public company and being on a board of a public company. Um, took a break. Um Went to the Rugby World Cup, uh, Sean, in the UK. I think you'll find it was 1999. I think you'll find Australia won that one. <laughs> and, um, yeah. And um, then joined Aquit, which is a US digital marketing recruitment company. I had the grandiose title of international CEO, which in American speak means everything outside of North America. And at the beginning of that joint journey, there were only about 25 staff and we we're only turning over about 10 million. But over the next 10 years, we grew that to 100 million. Uh, I was involved in opening 35 offices across 17 countries. So that was a fabulous experience. And I was just about believing my own sort of PR, Sean, that I could do no wrong when uh, 2008 came along, Lehman Brothers, GFC and I got a rude smack in the chops and it, uh, I learned that my business I was running wasn't nearly as strong as I thought. Um, there's a lot of lessons in this. Uh, the management wasn't as good as I thought. Our communications, our technology, our client relationships were shallow. I mean, the business was still strong. We still made money, but uh, there were plenty of offices that uh, were no longer sustainable. I had to close offices. It was a tough time. Recruitment industry worldwide suffered um, at that time. But we came out of it and an opportunity arose for me to engineer with Aquin's help, a management buyout of 10 of their offices, which we called Firebrand, 
And so there were 10 offices in eight countries. That sounds pretty big, but in actual fact, we had less than 100 staff. So it was a, those countries stretched from the UK to Japan to New Zealand and, and all points in between. And uh, we, we worked hard to grow that, which we did over the next two or three years. And I sold that in 2012. And since then, which is, I guess, now almost seven years, I've been acting as an advisor. Um, I'm on the board of, I think it's, four, well, I know it's 14 recruitment and HR tech companies uh, in, in five or six different cities. And that keeps me extremely busy. And I'm very privileged because I, I'm learning as much as I'm contributing because, you know, you're, you're on the inside of all these companies and you're hearing all their strategies and ideas and you're making your contribution, obviously. Otherwise, I guess I wouldn't be there. But um, it's tremendously fulfilling to do that. And I also do the odd public speaking, which is mainly for fun. If you, if you watch my public speaking circuit, you'll see it ties in very, very closely with international rugby fixtures. And so uh, you'll find me in, in, in interesting places doing that. And, and that brings us, uh, brings us up to now. And it, it is actually in January will be 40 years that I've been in recruitment, which I know we saw each other the, the other day. And I'm sure you'll agree with me. It's hard to believe because of how young and slim. I look. So thank you for that. <laughs> Absolutely. I cannot, cannot challenge that last comment. Maybe the World Cup comments and all the rest of it, maybe. But yes. Time was telling Japan this year, but that's okay. But mm. uh, talk to me. Uh, obviously, mm. 40 years, a lot of change, a lot of evolution. Uh, now you've got a wonderful perspective in terms of you travel the globe, you speak broadly, you're part of these boards. Mm. Uh, what, in your view, what does it take to become a successful recruiter in 2019? It's, 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 it's the million dollar question and we're all grappling with that. And, <laughs> and, 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 and the answer to it could be very, very long. But I, I, I think that it's this, Sean. I think that a great recruiter going forward will be expert in the use of the best technology. And they will harness that technology and they will extract the value from it. But it will synchronize with highly sophisticated human influencing skills mm. that's the marriage of art and science that makes a great recruiter in my view and and so it's wrong for people to say that automation will do recruiting it's equally wrong for the other side of the coin to say it's all human it's all the old school it's it's neither one it's not binary it's it's a it's a mix and tied in with that is the ability to build brand and really i'd say it like this a great recruiter has to provide clients with something they can't find themselves. Our competition isn't the other agencies. Our competition isn't LinkedIn. It isn't Seek. It isn't whatever. All those things are chipping away and playing their part. The real, real crux of value is to bring to clients what they can't find themselves. And that, of course, is unique candidates. So to do that, you do need great technology, and that might be sourcing skills. It might be automating part of it. It might be brand and marketing all of which is technology-driven these days. But it also needs influencing skills because you need to act as an agent for great talent and represent them in the marketplace. So I think what, we've, what we're going to find is that a lot of recruiters who have thrived in the past, um, either very old school, they will lose their traction because they won't be able to handle the technology part. And those that are purely automated-driven sort of um, – Transactional recruiters, they will lose out too because influencing outcomes is part of the formula for success. Does that make sense to you, Sean? Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I think there's some great mm. points there. And it's sort of funny mm. that you mentioned that word influencing. I went to a mm. uh, a conference a couple of years ago and they had, the, I think, the chief innovation officer or, or um, chief uh, technology officer of um, 
Telstra and his job mm-hmm. was to predict the future. That was the sole job to look at where technology was going and where the world was going. And his view was one of the last roles that technology will disrupt is that as the salesperson. And I think that ties back to your influencing skills and totally. not, not the um, the matching and the mundane side mm. of the sales role, but the dealing with the nuances of people and personalities and motivation and all that sort of stuff. Very hard for a computer to sort of, uh, I guess, manage that process, but there's not that many recruiters that deal with those nuances particularly well. So I guess th- the recruitment is going to be different moving forward. And I think, you know, maybe some of the AI and that sort of stuff that mm. deals with some of those mundane fundamental aspects of recruitment, that will be eradicated. But I think those uh, mm. skills around influencing and the nuances of people remain particularly true and relevant. And that's obviously the value that we're adding to our customers. Yeah, you're 100% right. And so, so is he because... I, I, I think it was last year I did a speaking tour where it was called Savage Cell, and the whole the whole crux of that was that that anything that anything that can be predicted can be automated, right? And so there are there are big parts of the recruiter job that will be automated, and, and it's already happening. But the real value is in the selling skills, and I use selling in this context, and I'm sure he was as well. In the modern context, not 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 spamming people or cold calling and what have you. It's influencing, it's advising, it's consulting, it's it's creating outcomes. That's where the value will be and, and, and increasingly. And a great example is this. You know, to, to, I said it's got to be technology and it's got to be influence. Well, here's a good example. There are people in this world who have the job of sourcer. Their job is to go and find people. And, and I think that job will slowly be eradicated because an algorithm will soon be able to be written and can probably be done already, which could say, find me UX designers in Melbourne. And it will go and search the internet, LinkedIn, Facebook, a thousand other storage houses, and it will give you a list of 100 names of UXs. So the sourcing is technology. But to reach out to those people, to have a conversation with them, to encourage them to have a cup of coffee, to interest them in a job, to manage the process, no machine's going to do that anytime soon. And, and that is the value of the recruiter. I'm fond of saying when artificial intelligence can handle a counteroffer situation, then the recruiter's job is gone. But I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Yeah, some fantastic insight there. I, I totally agree. So if we sort of pivot to our customers, and obviously there's two mm. two types of customers. Obviously there's the client uh, or the organisation, mm. then there's the candidate. But what's your sort of tips for, I guess, the, the client in so much as the companies, the organisations out there about how they best engage with agencies to get you know the best results in terms of what they're seeking, right? Well, we could spend this whole um, this whole podcast on that because <laughs> it, you know the the fact is that the recruitment industry in its current model is dysfunctional, mm. and it's dysfunctional uh, partially because recruiters allowed to be that way, but partially because clients drive it that way through contingent, multi-listed job orders. And so, my biggest tip for clients is work with less recruiters, expect more of them, but provide them more commitment. That is the key thing. You should give your jobs to a great recruiter exclusively and then expect the best from them. Provide them with information. Give them transparency. Bring them, bring them into the tent. It's like, you know, you're a corporate and you've got to, you've got to, you hire a lawyer to help you in a difficult case. You don't treat that person transactionally. You bring that lawyer into your confidence. You share information. You take their advice. And, and, and they are a partner with you. Same with your doctor, same with your architect. It needs to be the same with recruitment. 
the, the decision-making by many clients around how to use recruiters is totally dysfunctional and harmful to all parties. And when I say all parties, I mean the recruiter, sure. But I mean the candidate who is, suffers incredibly through this multi-listing and transactional recruiting and the client themselves. So my big tip is high expectations of your recruiter, sure. But give them high commitment. Allow them to do quality work. Don't ask your recruiters. I mean, if you give a job to three recruitment companies, you're basically asking them to compete on the basis of speed. Why would you? Why would you? Like, would you get someone to do your brand operation on the basis of who could do the fastest, or or, or do your contract, or paint your house, or anything? Would you like it done on the basis of speed or on the basis of quality? So, my my big advice is work at your partnership and your relationship with your recruiter. Yeah, hammer them for high expectations, but don't allow your decision to use a recruiter to be based on speed and price mm. because you will get a bad outcome and everyone will suffer. So that's my big tip to clients and I've been saying it to them for 30 years and a few of them have listened. <laughs> no, I think uh, some fantastic points. I, I totally agree. So uh, mm. good uh, good notions there. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, you've been involved in different cultures. You've built them from the ground up. Uh, you've had different evolutions uh, great markets, bad markets, mm. different geographies and cultures uh, within that. But what are your tips for creating and sustaining a high-performance culture? Because with the main, you know, I guess, uh, component of a recruitment company is the people within that. Obviously, you've got systems and technology and whatnot mm. to wrap that up. But what's your experience in that regard? I think, uh, I think creating a high-performance culture starts at the very beginning. You've got to hire the right sorts of people. You can't turn an apple into a pear. And if you, if you hire... Um, Mediocre people, and I don't mean they might be mediocre human beings, but they might have mediocre mm. uh, skills, ap- attitudes, or desire. Then you're going to get a mediocre business, and you can't pretty that up. You, you know, you, uh, you you can put lipstick on a pig; it's still a pig, <laughs> you know. So, so um, I think that's the first thing. The second thing is clarity around goals. We need great clarity about goals, and we need clarity about what good looks like. Um, Transparency around measurement and the scorecard and what good looks like is what drives performance. People have to know what it is. We don't want to hide it. And we need to reward high performance exponentially. I see a lot of bonus plans in recruitment companies which are drip-feeding bonuses to people for mediocre performance. That drives mediocrity. You want to over-reward high performance. You want to be very generous with what you share for those who over-achieve. Um, we need to have a business where 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 high um, high expectations are seen as a job perk. And I think I said this to your team the other day. Is that, you know, who comes home from a job interview and says, "God, that's a great job." They have really low standards. I'm going to love working there. People want good people want to work where expectations are high, and 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 where striving from other people in the team is consistent. Um, and and the final part, and there's many many parts to this is accountability and consequences. A high-performance environment has accountability. You know, if you play for the best rugby team in the world, you wouldn't know much about this, Sean. You're from New Zealand. But um, (laughs) if you play for the best rugby team in the world, um, then you get dropped if you underperform. And that has huge consequences for you, financially, morale, everything else. Um, And it's the same in business. I'm not saying people are going to get fired for making a mistake. It's not as blunt as that. But we, we have 
expectations. We have cultural expectations, behavioral expectations, um, activity expectations, and performance expectations. They are clear, they're communicated, they're agreed with. And then if they're not met, then there's a consequence. Now, that consequence might be a conversation, it might be any, any number of different things. I'm not talking about a hire and fire environment or punitive environment, not at all. I'm talking about a very collaborative team environment, but there's, there's consequences. If you want to play on the best team, going back to the sporting analogy, you have to perform to that team's standards. And it's that consistent message uh, and, and where there is a and, – and, and, you know, when I talk about accountability, you need to create an environment where accountability is like feedback, is cultural. It's not personal. Right? So people often sort of – in some organizations, if you give someone feedback, it's like, oh, they're picking on me. We need an environment where it's expected I'm going to get feedback, both good and constructively um, crit critiquing to drive improvement and that we not only have a culture of that, but we value it. And the people on the team value that because they want to get better. Those are some of the hallmarks. of. I'm sure it's true of all businesses. I, I, I'm really a recruiting guy and a business team managing type guy. And, and in my experience, those are the components that drive high performance, not cappuccino machine and beanbags in reception, which people seem to think solve all you know, employee satisfaction problems these days, and they're actually irrelevant. Oh, I agree. I reckon uh, sport is a great analogy for business, and particularly so in, in recruitment. And uh, mm -hmm. obviously, in sport, they they have a plan, they practice the plan, they go out and execute mm -hmm. that. But then they're constantly reviewing the data and the tape and all the rest of it about how mm -hmm. they get better. And the players expect to get that feedback, but it's in the context of how do I get better? It's not critical. Yeah, exactly. uh, but there is ramifications. If you're not performing, um, yep. you don't get selected next week, and that's nothing personal. It's just that we need to send the best team out to win. And obviously in business, you know, the goal is to win. So uh, yeah. I think some great insights here. So that's uh, mm. fantastic. Um, mm. Being a leader of recruiters is a tough job, but so rewarding when you get it right, as you know. Um, in your experience, how do you win the hearts and minds of your team to, to achieve great things in your experience? Because you're going to have the frameworks and the processes and all the rest of it, but unless you win, a bit like Spork, unless you win the hearts and minds of what you're trying to achieve, it's difficult to, to go out there and achieve great things. So what's your sort of tips or tricks on, on that side of it? See, that's a big question. You know, it would be almost, be almost easier if you asked me the meaning of life. Or, <laughs> you, know, you know, Greg, how do you become a great parent? It's, it's, there's, no, there's no easy answer to those questions, but... I think there are a few things that you can talk about. I mean, what people want from their leadership, I, I have learned, is consistency, is, is clarity, is transparency, is coaching and development, is a climate of trust, right? You need, you need to create a climate where while we said you've got to achieve and there's expectations, et cetera, we're not talking about a, uh, you know, as I said, hire or fire environment. You, you can allow to fail you, and you will be supported if your effort is there. Um, and, and I think it comes down to really small things. So if you take communications as a leadership sort of trait and, and you want to, want to win the, the, the hearts and minds of people, then you've got to be transparent with them and share things with them. You've got to do what you say you go, do, uh, you're going to do. Uh, there, there is nothing that undermines leadership and trust and therefore motivation. If you're constantly sort of leader who says, this is what we're going to do, this is what I'm going to do, and then doesn't deliver on it. I, I like to say, and I said it again the other day, I think you heard me, leadership is action. You know, talking is good, communicating is good, but people will judge you by your actions. And so if you're a leader who talks a good game and doesn't follow through, you will never win the hearts of people. They want to see you 
following through with the expectations you have on them. You, they, yes, you, they want you to lead by example, but they're not expecting you to be the biggest biller or do the most sales visits. That's that's not what they're really expecting. But they are expecting you to uphold the standards that you're holding them to. Um, I also think, believe it or not, that I, there's a little phrase I coined, which I call tough empathy, which basically means, you know, I think a good leader gives people what they need, not what they want. And, and, and it may not make you popular at that moment in time, but I, I'm not exaggerating the amount of times I get stopped in the street by people who used to work with me and I can hardly even recognize them. And they say, you know, you really pissed me off when you said this to me, but now I realize how much it helped. And now I hear myself saying it to people. So the, the moral of the story there is that you won't get thanked in leadership. And if you do, it'll be 30 years later. But um, you will learn over time that it, I, I guess I put it to you like this. People know in their hearts whether the people leading them actually care about their professional development instead of just treating them as a revenue earner. Now, we put pressure on our consultants to perform, but we also give them support and we truly want them to thrive as recruiters. And that means we'll invest in them, forgive them, give them opportunities, um, you know, let things slide. Having said that, you know, there's going to be accountability. There's also the opportunity to say, look, that person's going through a tough time at home. We're going to give them a break, whatever it might be. And people respect that and will repay it over time. On the whole, I'm generalizing. There's all sorts of people in this world, but on the whole. So I think that's the sort of environment. You can have a high-performing environment and you still be empathetic. You can have a, a accountability and you can still have support. And, and, and that's how I think you get buy-in to the goals that you want to set in growing a good business. And I think that's true of, of all sorts of businesses, but autocratic, dictatorship style, even if you reward well, you might get short-term effort, but long-term you won't get the loyalty. And when the worm turns and the market turns, your people will leave. They won't stand by you. Absolutely. Well, I think for a, a complex question, you've given us a simple answer, and I think there's some <laughs> uh, great points there, and I think uh, we'll, we'll bring it back to sport just for a moment, and I think uh, yeah, for those that support rugby, I think, yeah, obviously I'm biased, but uh, I think Richie McCaw, you know, you, you say leadership is action, and I think often he mm. wasn't that outspoken, but man, obviously his preparation, his process, but his performance and the way he conducted himself on the field arguably second to none and, and obviously some pretty good results that come with it and, and that probably garnered the support of those around him. But I think you made some uh, really fantastic points there. Uh, look, I've, I've got no doubt, you know, and I know I like to give you a hard time about the All Blacks. It's increasingly difficult to do, although <laughs> um, although they did lose to South Africa uh, last year and we, we, we still remember that. Um, uh, you're absolutely right about that individual. I mean, I think he was a prime example of that and I think that any of us who've played sport or in business – We've worked in teams and played in teams of highly skilled people who have been beaten by less skilled teams mm -hmm. who were more motivated and more collaborative. Mm -hmm. I, that's happened to me. You can get a team of, of, of superb individuals. I mean, we've seen it many, many times. I mean, um, it was, I don't know if you follow, um, into, uh, you know, the football in, in the UK, but, uh, you know, Manchester United uh, had this team of, you know, literally billion dollar players that couldn't win a game. Because it was apparently a troubled team who didn't believe in their coach. And then they changed the coach that won 15 games in a row or something. So I think there is a huge amount to be said, clearly, for leadership, which hits that sweet spot of high goals, high expectations. You've got to be good on this team. But we actually care about your success for its own sake, not only for the money you make us. And I think people want to know that because at the end of the day, people are all human beings and want to feel as though they have more value to their 
business than just the dollars on their forehead. Absolutely. I think that sense of authentic leadership and feeling mm. like they're, they're here to help me in my journey, mm. not I'm there to help their journey. Yep. Um, I think that's, uh, that's key. So great points. So uh, another huge philosophical question, uh, notwithstanding the comments already made, uh, what is the future of recruitment based on what you're seeing and hearing in the market? You're in this helicopter, you're, you're across the whole industry, you're hearing a lot of stuff at board meetings, at presentations, mm. at conferences. Yeah, what's the future of recruitment in terms of where things are going? Yeah, look, I mean, um, truthfully, and no, no, no jokes aside. Look, how the hell do I know? I'm just another <laughs> pundit. But, 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 you know, I do, I do listen to a lot of people. I read up on it. Uh, people ask me a lot of questions, and I, I am fortunate in a way because in that period of time that I've been in the industry, I've seen so much change, and and you know, some of it cataclysmic, or not cataclysmic, um, massive in this, like when the internet came along, right, and when mobile phones came along fundamentally changed ATSs fundamentally changed how recruitment worked and, and 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 job boards right and LinkedIn I mean all these things by the way were predicted to destroy our industry we only made more money with all those things but I actually think that artificial intelligence will impact our industry more than any of those now people often say to me but look at artificial intelligence it can't do it properly and there was the case of Amazon where it started to build bias into the recruitment process I like to remind them that the first airplane that flew, flew 200 meters and crashed, right? So at that time, you could say, well, that doesn't work. Airplanes are nonsense. Well, we're at the beginning of the journey with AI automation and machine learning. It's going to get more sophisticated, clearly. What I think will happen, and I don't know, and I could be made a fool out of this, but no one's going to remember me, but I think that big chunks how much? More than 50%. 60% of what recruiters do today will be automated. I think sourcing, screening, matching, even assessment. I, I, was, I was shown, I was contacted by someone in the US and I had a, yesterday morning a demo of the piece of artificial intelligence that, that cuts out a massive part of the recruiter's job. So huge parts of the job, logistics, organizing interviews and all the rest of it can all be done by calendars talking to each other, also chatbots. Look, they're unsophisticated now, but they're getting better and better and better. And I'm involved with companies that have installed chatbots that are saving huge amount of time already. And they're, and they're clunky, but they're already being chosen by candidates rather than speak to the recruiter for the early part of the screening process because the chatbot can solve a lot of the problems. And the, and the candidate can do it at you know, 10 o'clock at night with a beer in his hand. And one of the biggest – if you stop a candidate in the street and say, what do you like – what do you dislike about agency recruiters? Sadly, it might be a long list. But one of the things will be I can never get to speak to them. Mm. Chatbot's available. So, so there will be a lot of stuff. So what's going to happen, I think, is those recruiters who, who are actually highly skilled at parts of the jobs that – of the job that can be automated – and, and all over all our cities today, uh, Sean, you've got a lot of recruiters screening, screening people off seek and all the rest of it. That will all be automated. Mm. That will all be automated. And the part of the job that will have value is the sales part, the advisory part, the consultative part, the acting, and that's for the client and the can acting as an agent for the candidate. And that's an important thing. And most recruiters do not they screen candidates, they don't act as their agent and represent them in the marketplace like a like like a sports agent or a or, or, or a theater entertainment agent actually representing the talent is how I feel it will evolve. And so recruiters are gonna to have to become far more consultative. I think the job is gonna be far more sophisticated. 
And it's going to be about finding talent and bringing talent to the hiring table in a sophisticated way, not about what a lot of recruiters do, which is very transactional and can and will be automated. That's as far as I can look into the future, and I'm giving that a three- to five-year horizon before that starts to really become reality. I think you made some great points, and obviously you've got perspective that a lot of people don't have. So I think uh, yeah, there's a lot of logic behind what you're saying, and, mm. and I think some great points there for people to take mm. stock of or be aware of in the not-too-distant uh, future. So uh, good points there. Now, mm-hmm. we, we touched on the fact that despite your youthful good looks, uh, yes. you have got 40 years' experience almost. So mm. if you were to pick up that phone, and to call that young, even uh, even more youthful, good-looking young mm-hmm. fella at the start of his mm-hmm. career, knowing what you know now, what piece of advice would you pass on to that young chap? Uh, well, there's of course there's many many things, but the, <laughs> the big the big the biggest thing. Uh, I'll give you a couple, but I'll give you the big one. Number one is God protect and burnish your reputation, as it's your most important asset. Mm-hmm. So what I mean by that is, you know, if uh, if somebody's working for Stellar and they leave, well, they're going to take nothing with them unless they do something really stupid like steal a computer. The only thing they're going to take with them is their reputation. And your reputation is made up of the sum total of the interactions you have with clients, candidates, and colleagues. And, and those – it's many times the small – obviously, if you lie and cheat, your reputation will suffer. But it's the small things. Are you the guy who never returns phone calls? Are you the guy who – always keeps people waiting. Waiting. Are you the guy who's always late to every meeting? Are you the guy who interrupts? Are you the guy who, who, who over-promises and under-delivers? Are you the guy who finesses the truth to get an outcome for your own good? And all these things will culminate in a reputation which will either harm your career irreparably or enhance it and, and lead to recommendations, referrals, repeat business, accolades, and, and, and the ability to call in favors, not that I like to think of it like that, but to call on help of people that you have helped over the years for no thought of gain, but because it's the right thing to do. And I'm not, just don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting that, that I uh, am some sort of bloody do-gooder going around thinking about everyone else every minute of the day. That's not true. I'm as selfish as anyone else. But you do need to guide your reputation. And, and there's, there, I'll tell you a very short story, if I may, Sean, about this a seminal moment in my life when mm-hmm. I was about, um, I don't know, 29 maybe. And, and, I, was, and I, was, I, was, I was running recruitment solutions along with a few other guys. It was, it was going really well. And my colleague, Graham Whelan, who is the best recruiter I've ever met, um, was handling a job at Lendlease. And he said to me, Greg, I'm going on a long weekend. Lendlease is coming back to me with a decision whether to hire this guy. Let's call him Bobby Brown. Um, it's going to be a yes or a no. If it's a yes, could you communicate the offer to him? I've already pre-closed him. He's going to take it. If it's a no, could you let him down gently? Anyway, Friday, they called me, and it was a no. And for whatever reason, I acted out of pure cowardice, and I decided not to call this guy. That Oh, shit, Graham can deal with him on Monday. But, of course, the guy was on tender hooks, and he called me. And I told him a blatant lie. I told him I did not know and I had not heard from Lindley. So I did a dishonest thing. But then on top of that, I did a stupid thing. It was a day before the internet. And I ran an ad in the paper on Saturday for that job. And he saw it. And he knew I'd lied there. And he said to Graham Whelan, and Graham Whelan repeated to me, Greg Savage is a man not to be trusted. Hmm. This was 30 years ago. Hmm. 
It rings in my ears to this day. And at that day, I'd, I'd always been, I think, pretty honest. I'd, but I did a cowardly and dishonest thing that day, thinking I'd get away with it. It was just, I wasn't really lying. I did lie, but I wasn't trying to, it wasn't for gain. It was just out of weakness. And at, on that day, I decided no one is ever going to say that about me again. They can say, they can say a lot of other things, but they're never going to say that because I'm never going to give them the opportunity. So that, and then I learned over time that, that you build up a reservoir of goodwill through your reputation or, or, or a reservoir of resentment through your reputation. And it, 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 it not only allows you to sleep straight in bed at night or to walk down the street and not hide behind a pillar because you see some guy coming the other way that you, that you bullshitted or lied to. I never have to do that. Sometimes I see people in the street who might be annoyed at me because of whatever other reason. That's okay. That's life. But guard your reputation is the biggest tip I can give someone in recruitment and in life, business life, because it's, it, it's everything you've got. Well, I think there's great reputation not only for us in recruitment or people in their career, but I think it's true of life. You know, yeah. So I, I commend you on, on the authenticity and the uh, the honesty around that uh, particular moment in time. But obviously, yeah. it's still uh, you know high in your uh, high in your memory, high in your mind, and, and obviously something that you've been determined to uh, I guess nullify, rectify from that moment. But I, I yeah, think, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, yeah, you, you see how you might have dealt with that situation differently. But I think the comments you make there are not only true in business or career; it's true in life. I think that's right, and I think it's the sort of thing you want to teach teach your kids. I'll be honest with you. I mean, I speak about it now, and you might say, wow, that's great. For 20 years, I never spoke about it. Mm. I kept it to myself. It's only now. I mean, it was a moment in time, mm. and, you know, it could have been something I went, oh, that was a bit weird, and they've forgotten about it. But it, it, it turned a corner for me because or it's, there wasn't a corner that I needed to turn. That's probably too much. It just laid it out for me that I did not want to ever have to have that said about me again, uh, and it was justified because of what I did to that guy. And um, it was weak. And um, it was harmful to my reputation. And it wouldn't, it, it wouldn't surprise me if he told other people that Greg Savage, you know, this is a long time ago. The guy's probably, you know, long, long forgotten everything about this, but I haven't. And that's good because I think we need to learn from our mistakes. Absolutely. So that's a good segue into the next question. Uh, it sounds like you've been busy mm. writing this book uh, of late yep. and, and culminating some of these key learnings and lessons of, uh, of your career thus far. So uh, give us a short overview. What can we expect in the new book, uh, Greg, and when is it due out? Yeah, well, it's, thank you for that. It's, uh, it's, called, it's going to be called The Savage Truth uh, uh, because that, that's a great title for a book about a savage life. And uh, it's uh, basically 40 years of lessons in business, people, and life. Uh, it's been in recruitment, of course, but really it covers the full gamut, building a business from nothing to very substantial buying and selling businesses, trading through multiple recessions, people in leadership lessons, uh, building an asset out of your business, building brand is in there. Um, wide variety of things, but it's all woven in through stories and through through the history. You know, some of the screw ups I made when I was first promoted into leadership, um, lessons I've learned around the board table, uh, all those sorts of things. Um, it's 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 a warts and all thing. I mean, there is only one person who comes out of this book looking a bit of a dick, and that's me, um, <laughs> because um, you know I I, I tell. I don't know if I told that story in the book that I just told you, but there's plenty of others uh, like that. But, you know, I, th I suppose the theme is I learned and I got better and um, it, 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 it was a journey that you go on. 
I think it will be very readable for anyone in recruitment because um, there's a lot of recruitment lessons. There's a lot of leadership lessons. There's a lot of um, uh, asset building lessons. Um, it's going to be published in November. Um, it's it, it's going to be for sale in bookshops, etc., which will be a bit hilarious. I can't imagine how many people in Dimmocks are going to buy it, although the publisher is positioning it as a business book rather than a recruitment book, and I think that's true to a degree. But I'm also doing a speaking tour around Australia and New Zealand through the RCSA where we'll be launching it, and everyone who comes will get a copy of the book. Uh, and I'm hoping you – know, the last time I did something like that, 1,500 people came, so I'm hoping uh, – it took me six months to write that book mostly on aeroplanes and in airports because um, I've got a, quite a big job during the day. Uh, and I'm kind of proud of it because I think it's um, – I think it, 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 it – I can't say it's unique, but there's not many people who have been in recruitment 40 years, and there's not many people who can trace the changes in our industry. And there's probably – there's plenty of people who have been successful in recruitment, but I've had a very fortunate journey building my own business to – a public company, opening offices all over the world, working for an American company, um, you know, doing all these things, which which when I sat back and reflected on it, there's quite a few stories. And, and you'll be interested to know, when I was encouraged to write it, I said, look, guys, I can't remember. I can't remember all that stuff. So Ross Clement, who you probably know, yeah. set up a set up a LinkedIn page and, 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 a, and a Facebook page calling for anyone who'd worked for me in the last 40 years to – send in stories, anecdotes, and reminders, and we got hundreds of them. So <laughs> I, I went through these things, and I was like, oh, my God, here's the guy from Korea telling that incredible story. Put that in the book. Forgotten about that. <laughs> so it, it, it was actually, uh, yeah, quite a fun journey. I think it's an interesting read, but we'll see. Nah, absolutely. Well, look, Greg, I think uh, – there's not many books around the journey of recruitment, particularly successful <laughs> ones. I think the last <laughs> notable one perhaps is Flourish and Prosper, which is the Morgan and Banks yeah, story, as you know, which is a great <laughs> one. I think generally as recruiters and perhaps human beings, we're a little bit guarded by nature. We don't want to sort of reveal the, the bad stories. We don't want to talk about the good stories. So I think uh, good on you for storytelling the good and the bad and, and no doubt a lot of experience um, to share and, and a lot of uh, key learnings for people to sort of benefit from. But I think you should be proud. I think you sort of talked about the fact that you are proud. Mm. I think you should be proud. Mm. I think what you've achieved and, and given to the recruitment industry and the people that you've touched along the way is uh, – Remarkable. I think, you know, I turned up at the RCSA uh, annual conference last year in Noosa, and arguably, in my opinion, you were the, the best speaker there uh, after all these years. So I think good on you. Looking, looking forward to the book personally. I've enjoyed the feedback, the commentary, the advice that you've mm. given over time. And I'm really, really grateful that you're taking the time to to join us on the podcast and share some of those learnings. I think there's some great, simple takeaways and inspirational stuff in there. So uh, I appreciate it, mate. Well, thank you, Sean, and thank you very much to Stella for being uh, a, a, a company I've been involved in ever since I um, stopped running my own companies. I was on your board. I've spoken to your teams. We've always bantered over the years, and uh, I appreciate um, you even considering me for this podcast, and I hope that more than you, me, and uh, my wife listen to this podcast. That would be. <laughs> I've really got no good. doubt that we will we will exceed that uh, number as a goal. But uh, no, there's a lot <laughs> well, of I know, I know she won't. I know she won't listen. So that's down to two already. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gil, uh, who's recording and helping us there, he's already listening. So we, we can add that to get our numbers up. But excellent, excellent. I'm confident there'll be a lot of people that listen to it and get great value for it. So uh, thank Thanks. you so much. I appreciate it. All the best.
thanks for joining us on the podcast here today. I think uh, I think you'll agree there's some really simple, tangible insights from Greg's 40 years of experience that uh, we can take from this. So uh, whether you're a, a, a recruiter, whether you're a business leader uh, or a business owner, as we talked about at the, the top of the show, I think there's some really good insights. So um, trust you enjoyed. Uh, feel free to pass that on to anyone else who may benefit, like, share, or rate on your podcast channel, but really appreciate taking the time to listen to this and, and really hope you got some value out of the show today. So thank you. Thank you.